Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Hello, everyone. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the National Humanities Center and your host for this evening's event. Tonight's conversation is the second in our current three-part series, talking with scholars about the ongoing struggle to realize our founder's vision of a country dedicated to the proposition that all are created equal. Our guest this evening is David Bromwich, who began his career as a literary scholar at Princeton in 1977 before joining the English department at Yale University, where he is currently Sterling Professor of English. Professor Bromwich is the author or editor of over a dozen books dealing with the work and thought of romantic era critics and poets, 18th century politics, moral philosophy, and other topics but he's also built an international reputation as an incisive public intellectual. David Bromwich's essays and reviews touching on cultural as well as political topics have appeared in the New Republic, the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, and other journals. And he's a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post's political blogs. He has been described as an elegant American muse, and he's been praised as a daring and knowledgeable critic, willing to challenge received opinions and orthodoxies. David's work has earned him widespread recognition, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And it's been our great good fortune to have him as a trustee of the National Humanities Center since 2017. This evening, we've asked him to talk with us about his recent book, American Breakdown, The Trump Years and How They Befell Us, and his analysis of the dynamics that have produced our current political climate on the eve of the historic election. Please join me in welcoming Professor David Bromwich. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Robert, for that introduction. Uh, I actually like conversation in theory and try to uh, practice it uh, in consequence. So I, my intention is to talk for about half an hour. I'll, I'll perhaps do a bit of reading from the book to give uh, people who are listening some sense of it. And then maybe Robert and I will go into uh, dialogue for a few minutes and, and then take 
take questions that come up from people who are watching. Um, unfortunately, the title of this book, American Breakdown, was not hard to arrive at. Uh, there's, I think, a movie of that title. There may be one or two other things by that title, but it seemed to fit the predicament one felt oneself in uh, in the years when I was writing the bulk of these uh, articles, which are separable chapters or essays, but come together in the book, uh, about half of which are the slightly larger half of which deals with the administration uh, of Donald Trump and a little bit with the previous career of Trump. But I want to start uh, with the, the, the real, as I see it, uh, originating point of the troubles we are in for this uh, breakdown. Uh, and I would, I would set it in 2001 and at the uh, reaction to the September 11th attack on uh, New York and Washington, the reaction to it uh, rather than the attack itself, though it was the worst suffered by America on American land, the only thing to compare it to being Pearl Harbor. But I should say one could go back a step further to be honest about this reckoning um, and say that things really began not to make sense uh, for America's understanding of itself and of its place in the world around 1990, when there was a mood of general celebration, not only in the United States, but in Europe, about the fall of the Soviet communist system and the Soviet empire. Uh, something that owed a great deal to uh, the conversations between and negotiations between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in Reykjavik. Um, Reagan wanted to go farther than his advisors let him in disarmament, for example, of nuclear weapons, and Gorbachev uh, would have been the person to do it with. Um, but the United States response to that opening was completely, as I think we can see looking back, completely lacking in magnanimity. Uh, the reaction was to press Russia further as if it were still a foreign policy adversary, even though it was no longer communist and no longer ambitious in that way at all, by the expansion of NATO eastward, uh, a, an alliance that had been constructed entirely for the purpose of defending Europe and North America against the Russian empire, which no longer existed. Um, and it came out also in the nostrums of what was then called economic shock therapy uh, to give uh, Russians the benefit of big money capitalism about which America was riding high in those years. And a great many economists, mainstream economists, and people with a respectable reputation on the liberal side, such as Jeffrey Sachs, participated in this movement of economic shock therapy for Russia's benefit, but also for the benefit of uh, big money in the West. Uh, and so looking back, there have been uh, commentators who noticed this as a lost chance, as a, a road not taken that we can really lament in retrospect. I'm thinking of uh, critics of the policy such as Jack Matlock and the late William Polk. But on the whole, there's been very 
little self-scrutiny, very little uh, national self-inquest about how badly and how selfishly the administration of George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., and of Bill Clinton treated the opportunity opened uh, by the fall of the Russian Empire and the end of Soviet communism. So I wanted to put that in at the start um, because it may, it may lead to things further on in the discussion now that roles are reversed and it is not so much uh, the Republican Party as the Democratic Party that wants to restart a major adversarial uh, stance in the world against, I suppose, Russia most of all. Um, but the, the large event that uh, we can trace as a response and now know to have been a deeply misjudged response to the attack on the US in 2001 was the Iraq war launched by the Bush-Cheney administration. Um, and this was almost a foregone policy, the Iraq war. Uh, it was the fruit of thinking done before the United States had been attacked in 2001. You can track its origins to such documents as a pamphlet called Rebuilding America's Defenses, published in two, the year 2000, in which it was by a group of scholars connected to the American Enterprise Institute and the um, Project for a New American Century, in which it was stated that the United States couldn't properly dominate the new unipolar world in which we would rule through force of arms, but also force of ideas and goods. But we would only rule if military force projection were allowed. And that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't properly build up our defenses unless we were attacked in the absence, as uh, the famous words of that document said, in the absence of some catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Well, the new Pearl Harbor came a little more than a year later and a group of very well-prepared policy advisors, including Stephen Hadley, Douglas Fyth, Stephen Cambone, Paul Wolfowitz and others, some of these names will be recognizable, some not, came in uh, very closely associated to the vice president, Dick Cheney, and prepared for war against uh, Iraq. That preparation began in a speech Dick Cheney gave at the Veterans of Foreign War meeting in the summer of 2002, but the, the ginning up of the war is an experience many of us of sufficient years can remember quite well. It was made to seem inevitable and the case for deposing the, uh, in fact, internationally non-threatening tyrant, Saddam Hussein, the case for restarting the Middle East, for shaking things up, for shaking the kaleidoscope as Tony Blair put it, and changing the nature of the world at that moment. Again, the arrogance of a figure of speech like that, shaking the kaleidoscope. Um, but it was thought by the US, by its leaders at that time, by its policy strategists, and by their counterparts in Britain, that this was a proper role to play and that Iran would be a good place to start it. Sorry, I said Iran and I meant Iraq. Um, so let's get that straight from the start. Iran will come in a bit later. Um, Cheney's role in this shift of policy from what was thought to have been a hefty muscular defense by the greatest power in the world to an offensive policy, an aggressive 
policy to show our strength in the world. Cheney was the um, leader of that, the recruiter of other talents, and his his power in the Cheney Bush years from 2001 through 2006, right till almost the end, I think is impossible to underrate. He was placed virtually in charge of all things military, of domestic and foreign policy, of natural resources and energy policy, uh, and of nominations and appointments. And George Bush, George W. Bush, the younger, famously said, when you talk to Dick Cheney, you're talking to me. We now know that the Iraq war was based on forgery, or rather more than one forgery, the prepared uh, finding of uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq uh, never happened. Um, there was talk of a special stash of enriched uh, uranium that could be found in Niger, also false. There were reports that made no sense to anyone who knew the region that Saddam Hussein had sent out agents to uh, convoke a special meeting uh, with Al-Qaeda, but Al in fact, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, was uh, entirely opposed to Al-Qaeda, who were a danger to him much more nearly than to the United States. And one reason he acted imprudently in making gestures of resistance to weapons inspection was that he didn't believe America would be so stupid as to attack him, as to attack this bulwark against Al-Qaeda, which we had genuine reason to fear because Osama bin Laden had launched the September 11th attack. So, um, the war was begun March 18th, 2003, and was brought, uh, the optimistic president believed, to an end when he held his mission accomplished rally uh, on an aircraft carrier a few weeks later on May 1st. But of course, the war wasn't over yet. It turned into a civil war in Iraq with a large assassinations campaign going on in Baghdad, depriving that country of a great deal of the middle-class professionalism and expertise it needed in order to build itself up and to become a, a part of the world of nations at a higher level than it had been before. All that was lost. The country was um, uh, not, not uh, what to say, entirely destroyed, but for instance, um, the uh, water and electrical systems so weakened that it took years to put them back halfway operational uh, again. That's the great event and the great, um, uh, what to say, shortfall, um, the uh, disappointment of uh, the Bush years. And it, it's, it's a queer thing. Uh, sometimes accident plays an amazing part in history, and I actually believe it did in this case, though I don't think it's something I ever mentioned quite in this, in this way in print. I do think George W. Bush uh, believed himself to be avenging his father's honor, and at the same time, uh, reaching beyond his father's achievement by finally getting rid of the tyrant that in the first Gulf War the elder Bush had left in place. And there was an, an unsuccessful assassination attempt that could be tracked back to the Middle East on the life of George H.W. Bush. And the younger Bush wanted to get back at them for that too. So you have this um, <laughs> Shakespearean uh, plot going almost of a son wanting to um, up the stakes, 
uh, and prove himself better than his father. And that entirely irrational element, I think, can't be omitted from the many factors that contributed to the, the folly and the catastrophe for Iraq, even more than for America, of that, of that war. Um, and, and the younger Bush, as far as I can tell, is feeling remorse about it these days. You can see it in the uh, weekly bicycle rides he takes with paraplegics from the war. You can see it in the heroic biography he ended up writing uh, about his father. You can see it in the decorous silence he has preserved about subsequent politics. He is the least active and the least vocal of ex-presidents that there has been in, in memory, perhaps since Eisenhower. Um, that's a, a digression, but maybe of, maybe of some interest. Uh, the war was saved, that is to say, kept on the map, that is kept alive war, uh, which we didn't have to say we lost by the surge uh, planned by uh, Frederick Kagan and Jack, General Jack Keane and put into execution by Bush in 2007. But that only prolonged the war. And meanwhile, of course, the war in Afghanistan, which had begun as a hunt for Osama bin Laden, was grinding on and on and on as it now has for 18 years. Important to remember that the two Democrats who were serious aspirants to the presidency in the Bush years, namely John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, both as senators voted for the Iraq war and yet gave signals to their followers and anyone who could read between the lines that they didn't altogether believe in it. That's a terribly weak position for people close to the leadership of a major party to be giving. But it's pretty typical of the way opposition parties have worked in the face of war in the United States throughout our history. So the two parties are, are moving closer together in other ways as the candidacy of Barack Obama uh, gets into high gear in 2008. Obama is having regular conversations on the tarmac as he moves from one city to another campaigning with Bush's Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, who was formerly head of Goldman Sachs. And one of the most fateful decisions of the uh, Obama um, presidency, uh, which really took place before he became president, was the appointment of his economic team led by a group out of the Goldman Sachs circle, very similar to Paulson, um, headed by Lawrence Summers and Timothy Geithner, um, associates of Robert Rubin, who had been, uh, of course, in a similar position in the Bill Clinton administration. So this idea that the two parties aren't seriously opposed to each other in foreign policy, and they aren't seriously opposed to each other in the sort of economic advice they're getting, both uh, Bill Clinton, the younger Bush, and then Barack Obama in 2009, all three, have uh, moved Wall Street into the White House as a way of feeling secure about the economy. And you get an economy that's based on stocks and the activities of big banks, and it leads to um, the abuses that we came to know when we learned about complex derivatives, mortgage default swaps, and the other abuses that led to the real estate bubble blowing up in 2007, 2008, and then the financial collapse, which was the inheritance Ob the Obama administration began with after uh, 
he succeeded to Bush. I suppose the easiest way to formulate the popular causes of the turn against the Democrats that led to the surprise of Donald Trump being elected in his contest with Hillary Clinton is to say that um, from the start, Obama with these advisors had underrated the impact, the the really uh, catastrophic impact in the economy and in the lives of many, many people um, of that financial collapse from which the government helped the banks and the larger industries such as the automobile industry to recover. Bailouts for the banks, but a much slowed down and much less efficacious program for people to keep their houses which were being closed down by uh, underwater mortgages. Obama's way of talking about this in the second and third years of his government was to speak of headwinds. We're still getting headwinds that are buffeting us a bit in this economy, but the sense was of recovery uh, always on the way. And yet it was recovery that never quite came for a great many Americans in what we now call the Rust Belt or flyover country or otherwise known as during election time, the battleground states. Um, Obama also had campaigned on the foreign policy of rejecting the Iraq war as a wrong investment of American military power, but accepting the Afghan war, the Afghanistan war as a necessary one. And he was trapped by this. Uh, He had chances to get out of Afghanistan from uh, especially a set of memoranda sent to the State Department and read by Obama and possibly available for public use by an an ambassador there. But uh, these were not used. Uh, The Afghanistan project was uh, felt to be an inevitable uh, commitment of the United States. And the reasons for staying there, though, it's been nowhere near as damaging a policy to the country or to the United States prestige of the world are very similar to the reasons for staying in Vietnam. We couldn't afford to lose face. We somehow couldn't afford to have a war that we said we'd lost by just pulling out. Um, It seems to me that the Republicans with Cheney very much behind them attacking Obama early in the early months of administration felt that they had him on the run when they saw his intention to stay in Afghanistan and when they heard such um, announcements as he made in his National Archives speech um, on May 21st, 2009, that was where he uh, uh, conceded that he thought the United States would have to keep a category of permanent prisoners who were too dangerous to be let go, but who since they had been tortured could not be tried because the evidence would be inadmissible. It's where he canceled his intention to uh, print a second set of uh, photographs of things the US had done in Abu Ghraib and other prison camps abuses of the Iraq war. And I think the Republicans, the at that time war party, felt they had him on the run also uh, when, for example, he uh, tried to announce his intention to free some of the Uyghur prisoners completely um, without crime uh, from Guantanamo. And uh, Congressman Frank Wolf of Virginia said he wouldn't take them in his district. And then Obama went back on his intention to release them. There was a lot of indication of timidity in those early months, stepping forward and then under any kind of attack, 
uh, stepping back. Another example was the announcement that there would be a civilian trial for uh, Khalil Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of the September 11th attack. And then when Senator Lindsey Graham and Mayor Mike Bloomberg attacked that, said, and you can't do that in York, it's, it's too scary, it'll, it'll disrupt the city, uh, Obama and his Attorney General Eric Holder pulled back. It was similar in jobs policy and uh, the, what to say, nitty gritty of economic recovery. Obama had spoken early of how many jobs on the pattern of perhaps the Civilian Conservation Corps under FDR would be shovel ready within uh, months of his taking office. But by his uh, second year in office, he was joking about the phrase shovel ready. He spoke about what he called a pivot to jobs so often that it became a subject of ridicule in stand-up comedy. Um, so, what were the achievements of that administration? I think preeminently the Affordable Care Act and the uh, Iran nuclear deal. But uh, even with those, uh, there were drawbacks, there were pitfalls whose nature and scope became clear only at a later date. Uh, Obama came to his commitment on health care rather late and arbitrarily in ways people don't always entirely understand. Um, he and the insiders in that administration, his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, and others weren't sure what their big policy should be, what, the, what their signature policy should be in early weeks. And they held discussions in which, in effect, with the help of focus groups, they threw against the wall two ideas. One was climate disruption, let's do something big about climate change, and the other was healthcare. And healthcare was the more popular, so they decided on that. But it involved an enormous delay, thanks to Obama's pressing desire, an almost, almost a compulsion with him, to prove himself bipartisan and get some Republicans to vote for it. So a long wait was induced partly from this cause and from routing it through five committees of Congress rather than trying to map out the policy in its main, in its main outlines, at least, in the White House. Um, in the end, no Republican voted for that uh, health care policy. And there were other um, obstructions or mistakes made on the way. Uh, in the three and a half years between arriving at the policy and rolling it out uh, in that computer availability that uh, emerged in early 2013, Obama had held only one uh, conference with his uh, appointed head of uh, the, 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 uh, the new healthcare program, Kathleen Sebelius, once in three and a half years. And this suggests a habit of delegating rather than deciding and a distance from policy by the president who is executing it. That's very unusual and at the same time, temperamentally much in keeping uh, with what we know about Obama. His second term was uh, a bit, uh, it stumbled on that because that was in the, in the earliest weeks of the term. And he was also confronted by what was then called the Arab Spring and the question how to respond to it. And the delayed response of the administration under persuasion from uh, Hillary Clinton in 2011, I should say, I'm stepping back a little, but the, the policy continues into the second term, was to uh, put together a United Nations uh, coalition uh, to 
depose um, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, the despotic leader of Libya. And the Libyan war was, as it were, an Iraq war in small, nowhere near as many killed, nowhere near as much destruction, but it set a migration in motion across the Mediterranean that really horribly expanded the, the, the extent of the disaster in the greater Middle East and led eventually to slave markets being reinvented uh, in Libya. So Obama's second term was under a burden partly self-made and partly made for him by the Republican majority that began to gather at the first midterm election in 2010 and that you know, gained momentum as time went on from going from, uh, from the Senate to, uh, to Congress. Nevertheless, uh, and, and I should mention one other um, element uh, that, uh, that Obama had to contest against, and that is the Tea Party, this populist right-wing movement, pretty well funded, um, but nevertheless, with a lot of, uh, as, as we came to call them, angry white men, angry white people, and other people on the ground, going for, from city to city, and not disrupting things tremendously, but showing that they felt uh, something about the country was going wrong and they were gonna say so. These people on the whole um, were anti-tax, um, but they were also anti-immigration. Um, and to some extent, um, they were, they were uh, people disappointed with the results of the wars who did not know what to do with their disappointment. Um, can't cover everything and I will say nothing as I had intended to do uh, about the uh, National Security Administration, Edward Snowden and those conflicts where again, Republican and Democratic responses were not as differentiated as you might've thought. So in walks Donald Trump, a complete outsider to both parties who had contributed in fact in his career as a businessman, uh, more money to Democratic candidates than to Republicans and who in the 1990s had wondered whether he might not want to run for president and said he guessed he would have to run as a Democrat. Um, Trump, however, took a great interest in the birther campaign against Obama. Uh, that sort of tabloid fascination has always been part of him. Um, and he was rated very low by his Republican and Democratic uh, opponents when he walked into the primaries in 2015, and even after he took the nomination uh, in 2016. Hillary Clinton felt that the comeback of the economy would clinch her victory pretty conveniently. It was inconceivable to her and her advisors, and the polls made it seem inconceivable too, that someone as unsuitable and unqualified as Trump uh, would uh, carry the day and actually be able to be elected president against a popular uh, vote uh, margin of more than 2 million, but getting plenty of the electoral votes he needed. A friend of mine uh, talking to me after, I think it was the first debate between Trump and Clinton, where it emerged, as you would expect, that Clinton had a great deal of competence for government and Trump didn't know what, what a, 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 a president would need to know. But nevertheless, she said, this friend, that uh, no matter how relatively incoherent Trump sounded and no matter how masterly Clinton's presentation of her knowledge of policies, there were issues on which Trump had a kind of slogan that addressed a grievance, specific grievance, of a sort that you couldn't possibly extract from the 
number of position-taking statements that Clinton made. And the three areas of policy were immigration, jobs for Americans, and getting out of the wars. And on all of those, Donald Trump said things that would not only be sympathetic to the Tea Party constituency, but to a great many other Americans. People wanted to know where the limits would be drawn on immigration because there was a fear of defending one's own jobs um, against lower paid people who will take any work. Um, then there was the desire to get back what our industrial base had lost over the preceding several decades, going back to Jimmy Carter's administration. And there was exhaustion with the wars and very little patriotic fire left in the sort of people who would have rooted for the wars earlier. Um, so that's the wave Trump rode in on. Um, and, you know, I, I had planned to give a, a, a summary uh, of his uh, years in office, but I think I'll run through that very fast and just read a couple of passages from the book and then go into discussion. Um, Trump was, uh, attacked by anticipation in a most unusual way, and it still looks unusual to me uh, in retrospect. And that was uh, happened a few days before his inauguration when the three heads of intelligence, James Comey at the FBI, uh, John Brennan at the CIA, and James Clapper at the uh, national, um, the, uh, the head of national defense, approached Trump with revelations from what would we now know as the Steele dossier and told him that um, he might be in some danger and he should just know about this danger. Um, think about what it would be to be Trump looking at these guys and receiving this information, which they say has lots of rumors about you, some of them perhaps true, and we just want you to be ready. We want you to know how to defend yourself. And of course, they were also saying you better rely on us. Um, the response of Trump to that approach by the intelligence community, which the right in America now calls the deep state, um, was to fire James Comey. And that led to the appointment of uh, Robert Mueller um, and, and the, the, the instigation of the Mueller inquiry. But as everybody now knows, the Mueller inquiry um, fizzled in a sense. Um, it led to the finding that there had been lots of contacts between Donald Trump and Russians but uh, no established coordination or conspiracy, that there had been clear evidence of what could be called contempt of Congress, but that uh, Trump, even though he had wanted Mueller to be fired, hadn't gotten him fired. So what to say, the motive had, be worse, had been worse than any action that took place. Um, nevertheless, Trump's missteps led to a further prosecution of him of a more literal sort in the impeachment after his phone call to Ukraine, where he seemed to promise uh, that the delay of an arms shipment would be um, would no longer obtain, that the, the shipment would be released if only uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainian president would assure him that investigation of uh, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden would be for, would be performed. So that was one of the impeachment charges. And again, plenty of evidence of bad intent, but a bad action not quite carried out convincingly and the Republican party stood firm with only Mitt Romney voting for one of the impeachment charges. And then we've had the COVID crisis, which the Democratic party has chosen to blame entirely on Trump and Trump feels himself to be 
um, largely innocent of. It's a, a kind of bad miracle that has dropped out of the air. I think what anyone would have to say more impartially about his response to COVID is that has been deeply irresponsible and chaotic uh, in a manner that marks the man and marks his presidency. But how to work against it um, in the light of the kind of following he gathered from the preceding administrations and, and American bewilderment about our place in the world, how to proceed, how to proceed against the Trump presidency has never been quite clear and the Democrats have struggled with that. Um, and there, it isn't clear that there's any one party, one movement or one kind of policy that has a popular mandate um, at this moment. Let me read just one passage from the introductory chapter of the book and then I'll, I'll stop. Uh, this is from, from the end of the introduction. <clears throat> Though impeachment, and I wrote this book a little before the impeachment occurred, would seem to be the constitutional solution. It may be that only a rejection of Trump by a strong majority in 2020 could begin to reverse the degeneration that he personified as a symptom even before he hastened the process by his official acts. The loyalty party remnant have been so thoroughly imposed on that they would take impeachment as proof of a conspiracy against Trump. They have been coached to believe that every finding of the Mueller inquiry is part of an organized attempt to nullify the election of 2016. Foreign policy, I add, always limits what can be done in domestic policy. And it is mad at this point for the United States to have a foreign policy toward every country in the world. This fact about foreign policy is most the case for a nation immersed in multiple wars of choice. Whether we speak of them or not, and they're way off the headlines now, they are a drain on civic imagination and public energy to say nothing of the loss of lives. Nationalism of the sort Trump seemed to represent in his campaign might at least have led to a greater concentration on the repair and reform of American society and the improvement of justice at home. But the most dire hazard of the corporate plunder undertaken by the Trump administration can be seen in defunding and staff reductions in places like the National Weather Service, located in the Department of Commerce, the food and drug regulation in the Department of Agriculture, and control of nuclear waste in the Department of Energy. The greatest war we face for many generations to come will be defensive in nature. Climate disruption stands as the overwhelming collective danger that the distraction of the Trump years has tempted us to ignore. And those who concentrate all their passions against Trump are captive to his denial as much as those who are genuinely ignorant. Global climate disruption is already a cause of effects we still speak of as if they belong to separate categories, immigration, inequality, war. There will be wars as a consequence of climate disruption. There will be mass migrations and there will be increased inequality. Meeting the change that is on us will require a form of international control we haven't begun to imagine. Trump did more than anyone else to create a national distemper that has postponed for a few years longer a reckoning with the future of life on earth, more than cheating an election or insulting traditional allies or degrading the norms of public speech in unheard of ways, his denial of the existence of this more than national predicament should be counted as the largest 
of his crimes. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, David. Uh, I want to begin with a, a question. Um, Trump's presidency is referred to so much as a kind of outlaw presidency and um, a norm buster. But you assert in the book and you point out that Obama is very much a kind of precursor to Trump, uh, particularly in the power of celebrity um, and the ability to galvanize a kind of magnetized uh, attention. So is Trump's presidency really that unprecedented uh, or is it more a kind of normalization or reflection of certain new tendencies in American manners and in the American media? And, and what might those tendencies be? Good question. Um, Obama was a rock star, as his admirers call him, and he was a great campaigner. And, you know, he cut a great figure. Um, uh, personally, there's a kind of magnetism many people feel about him and a glamour that reminded some of JFK. Um, and the media certainly were friendly to him and he spent more time uh, getting interviewed, getting friendly interviews, um, being even on comedy shows, being uh, uh, um, interviewed for whole hours uh, at a time on, on late night talk shows. I mean, that, that kind of thing, which Obama did engage in, what was unprecedented. And he was a publicity-oriented president and an image-oriented president uh, in a way that outdid uh, Bill Clinton, outdid um, certainly the older Bush, but the younger as well. But I, th there was one <laughs> very important normal thing that went on as before under Obama, and that is to say the business of government was mostly being... Um, pursued by people qualified to do the business. Um, places like the Department of Commerce, places like the Department of Agriculture, places like the Department of State were fully staffed and people were doing tasks that the president was the ultimate decider on. But um, there was a machinery, there was a respectable bureaucracy of government, if we can combine that adjective and that noun, um, that, you know, was very much in line with, with precedent. And of course, Obama's way of talking was, it was rather vague, it was rather over-dignified, it was, it was too lofty much of the time, but it was polite, it was refined, um, it was at, at the very least unobjectionable, and he was very good at projecting sympathy, especially sympathy to people who were in need. For instance, the part he acted almost as a grief counselor uh, after the many mass shootings that happened during the Obama years. So there's a kind of human feeling there and a kind of, what to say, um, corporate and governmental efficiency that continues and is even, you know, the Obama years are, I would say, a distinct improvement on its predecessors in many of those respects. Um, Trump, Trump breaks with all of that. Let me, let me name just one fact about manners that, that I think captures it because of the medium that he is most um, engaged with and to which he owes a great deal of his popularity, namely Twitter, social media, um, Trump has recurrently attacked individual American citizens, um, people of some importance, people who are part of the opposing party, people in the media, but sometimes just ordinary citizens when he's disgusted by a statement that's been made against him. Everything is personal to him and he, 
the chief magistrate of the most powerful country in the world goes after individual citizens in this intemperate, this almost insensate way. So that, that's a matter, if you will, of manners, um, not of law. There's nothing illegal about what he does. We don't have any precedents for it. But I think the, the temper or what I call the distemper that it has fomented in the country it is without precedent. Um, but it is a, it's a regrettable fact that um, though completely different people were captivated by Obama and by Bush, um, they, they both owe a tremendous lot and have been uh, tolerated even for their faults um, because of their value as celebrities. And I, I think this is, um, this has not been true of all presidents. I mean, if, in fact, if you go back um, I think it's only it's only um, really John Kennedy and FDR uh, in the 20th century who had anything of that quality. Um, and, you know, one could argue that they didn't work as hard at celebrity as Obama did. And they didn't live for it minute for minute, uh, you know, looking at TV, looking at Twitter, seeing if he's mentioned uh, the way Donald Trump does. So, um He's a bad example of a new kind. One of our viewers asked uh, that you say something about the implications of Cheney and Bush's foreign policy for domestic policy, um, whether there may not have also been domestic policy reasons for their foreign policy actions. And she cites in particular the alacrity with which the Patriot Act was formulated and passed. Well, there's no doubt that I don't know about Bush. Uh, I don't. I don't credit George W. Bush with ideas, but Cheney had very uh, pronounced ideas about the executive uh, power that the president should be able to command, and he's as as extreme an anti-libertarian and, if you will, um, a constitution-breaking um, leader as America has ever known. And it is a scary fact about our recent past. He wielded more power than anyone since Franklin Roosevelt, I believe, and with, and with more um, potent effects on the country and on the future of the country. The weird thing about the Patriot, uh, the Patriot Act, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I've, I have tremendous admiration for Russ Feingold, the one senator who voted against it, 98 to one. Um, the Patriot Act was rolled out a few weeks after uh, the attack of September 11th, and it had obviously been in waiting. It was it was a full it was a ready for action document. It had they hadn't struggled to write it and written it very fast and produce something modest but necessary. It was a full fledged piece of domestic repression, and I have no doubt that Cheney, uh, going all the way back to his work, um, not so much as Secretary of Defense for George H. W. Bush, but his work as a congressman and as a defender of Ronald Reagan's actions in Iran-Contra, that Cheney had a fascination with executive power and a desire to expand it. So in that sense, expanding the presidency, um, there was a motive that the Iraq war cooperated with very neatly. Um, but though I hate to say anything uh, in extenuation or <laughs> of, of Cheney's role in that administration, he wanted the, it's a matter of fact, I think, about the earliest days of discussion of these matters, that uh, Cheney wanted the Iraq war less than Bush did. Um, Bush, Bush was telling people 
from the first days of the government, um, get all you can on Saddam Hussein. I'm very interested in Iraq. Um, but for Cheney, yeah, it was a, it was a pretext. Um, but if, if by domestic policy, we mean such things as health care, um, low income housing, um, you know, improvement of the infrastructure and so on and so on. Uh, I, I, I don't think that um, uh, Cheney had a stance on any of that that's particularly possible to differentiate from the general Republican stance, which is, you know, it was even in those years the trickle down Reagan economics and the idea that corporate, the corporate profits will eventually profit everyone. I don't think he had much interest in domestic policy. Um, and this, this comes out in odd ways. After the, after the Katrina hurricane and the, and the disaster, the flooding, um, the displacement of people that followed, um, Bush asked him to lead a uh, commission I was going to go down and investigate and decide what the proper measures of recovery and reparations were for New Orleans. And Cheney point blank refused. He just said, I won't do it. It's not interesting. And so great was his status in the Bush administration that Bush just took that and appointed someone else. Another uh, viewer asked you, uh, mentions that you talk in the book about the growing lawlessness or contempt for the rule of law since the Vietnam War and its aftermath and asked what potential correctives or remedies do you see? Well, I think, I think, um, I think rioters have to be prosecuted and I think um, millionaires have to be prosecuted uh, when they abuse their power by wrong investments of people's pensions. And one of the um, one of my regrets about you know the uh, roads not taken in the Obama administration was that he did not make a point of actually prosecuting uh, some of the war criminals of Iraq and Guantanamo and actually prosecuting some of the financial criminals of Wall Street. Um, but there's a, a, a pathetic moment of testimony before the uh, one of the House Finance Committees by Eric Holder in which Holder uh, confessed that, uh, you know, he believed that the great structures, the money firms and the banks were too big to fail. And he, and he said, this is not good for democracy, I recognize it, but it will be a terrible distraction for us. And it's a fight we just don't have the resources to take on. Well, it have taken tremendous courage and initiative um, and um, yeah, stamina for Obama to prove he cared about the rule of law by prosecuting war criminals and bank criminals, but that would have been good. Um, it, and it seems to me that the rule of law, to us who've lived long enough in America, has a somewhat different sound than law and order. Law and order is, law and order is lots of policing and lots of people in jail and lots of people are bound to be criminals and let's get them all. The rule of law means we're all the same. Uh, we all have to, if we want to object to a law, find ways of objecting to it or suffer the penalty by conscientious objection, but care about the common good in that way and show your care for it in the, common, in, in, in the, in the usual ways. Um, the kind of lawlessness that we're seeing now, um, on the one hand, in such events as the plot to kidnap uh, the uh, governor of Michigan and its precursor, those demonstrations in the Michigan state capitol, 
And on the other hand, the hundred days plus of rioting and arson in Portland by largely left-wing crowds. I mean, these are, these are very unhappy omens. And I think that people like the democratic mayors who aren't saying enough against their rioters, their nightly rioters, and people like the Republican uh, legislatures that aren't saying enough against their vigilante militia demonstrators um, are culpable in a much worse way even than Obama and Holder for not upholding the rule of law by their words and by their actions. Another viewer asked if Trump's election speaks to a prevailing anti-intellectualism in America. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, 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 and yes. It, it is an extraordinarily anti-intellectual country, uh, and he is the most, uh, oh, I, I mean, I don't want to, I, I, I can't get into the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN habit of finding new language for denouncing Trump. He's a, he is a crazy man, and he is a bad man. Um, but what are you going to say? He's he's he does not he does not put uh, coherent policies together. He's a source of incoherence, even where he might have done some good in his own um, in his own political interests. Um, you know, there is no reason for us to abandon the missile treaties with Russia, given Trump's desire uh, to have better relations with Russia for whatever reason. Of course, we all know the reason. He's in debt to Russian businessmen because they're the ones who are buying his apartments. But, you know, well, so many false trails, that was anti-intellectual too. The Democrats restarting the Cold War stuff about Russia as an adversary and acting as if there had been a military attempt to have a coup against the United States by destroying our elections. No, no, no. They didn't think Trump was going to win and they did not make a major effort. But no, the anti-intellectualism of Trump, it doesn't even, I mean, it's not, anti-intellectualism sounds like a commitment. Um, I mean, it's just complete uh, absence of, of mind in the usual sense. But yes, that is a long American tradition. And the exceptions to it, even in the presidency, are, are so few that we're absurdly grateful for them. People are, I think, absurdly grateful for Obama for speaking like uh, a president of a university. Um, okay. I mean, but if, you, if, like me, you've met plenty of university presidents, we shouldn't value it that much. Um, but yeah, a civilized tone was set. Um, or Jimmy Carter, um, who got his from the Navy. But you know, um, we like that a lot, and we have other examples that are multiple. If you listen to the, if you listen to the, um, the hearings, for example, of uh, that that I was listening to partly today of Amy Coney Barrett. You know, she's an academic and a, a thoughtful and uh, reasoning kind of person, though not my legal politics. Um, but you know, why not have a few more people like that who are not just Supreme Court judges, but senators? We don't have very many. Um, and here I am fulminating. I mean, there's nothing to say about it except this is us, this is America. <laughs> so another of our viewers uh, wants to return to the question of Afghanistan um, and worries about the possible return of, to power of the Taliban uh, and suggests that Maybe we shouldn't abandon and create a power vacuum. You can say that about many countries in the world, but we have more than 700 bases throughout the world. And we put billions, is it trillions of dollars into Afghanistan by now, most of it corrupt and going to heroin interests and so on. So yes, bad things can happen in the world when the United States pulls out and bad things seem to happen when we go in too. So it, do, it does not seem to me that our role should be 
to be the force for order in a unipolar world. Um, we're gonna have to develop far more self-dependency, ability to manufacture our own goods, repair our infrastructure so people can travel, develop a modest kind of prosperity for a far larger number of Americans. And this may not be compatible with, you know, um, uh, saving uh, our enlightenment ideals from, from the encroachment of the Taliban. Um, what, what the Taliban did in Afghanistan is far, uh, is, was far less damaging in deaths and in corruption than what the United States and the, al and the opponents we conjured into being, such as ISIS, um, have done in that whole region. You say in your book that the job of a decent politician is to appeal to the interests of the people without feeding their prejudices. So is there uh, a shred of decency left in politicians? Can we find them? Uh, or has that decency been entirely jettisoned now? Um, no, there are, there, of course, there are decent politicians. Um, you know, in the COVID crisis, though he made mistakes too, I think the way, the way that was conducted with the explanations performed in public by Governor Andrew Cuomo was admirable. Um, he let people know what was happening day by day, let, let them know why it was happening, um, and so on. And there are, you know, uh, uh, um, senators who exemplify this kind of decency and, if you will, civic virtue as well. Sherrod Brown, I think of as as one. Um, and, you know, I will give even I would I would say one should credit Mitt Romney with a certain amount of courage, being the one person who voted as he did on a difficult occasion. Um, maybe decency and intelligence and some idea of policy direction, all three combined are rather hard to arrive at. But I think there are, um, there are people like that among our lawmakers. There just, there just aren't enough of them. I mean, this goes back to a comment Tocqueville makes uh, in his book on American democracy. He says, you know, there, there, when you travel around enough and talk to people in this country, you talk about the 1830s, but I think it's still true. You see that there are many uh, great talents and great energies in the country. But he says they just, it happens in America. They just aren't in politics. <laughs> if it's any comfort to think that our that this French observer believed that as early as the 1830, maybe we should take comfort from it. So I want to uh, conclude by quoting from, by asking a question from uh, a quote from uh, toward the conclusion of, of your book, where you say, can we recover a rational skepticism regarding the state and corporate institutions, and at the same time acknowledge the value of a representative government with three functioning branches? For constitutional democracy to survive, this doubt and this fidelity must be made to coexist again. So can you give us some hope that we could accomplish this? Um, I should say I'm not, I'm not uh, yet living up to uh, the practice I'm about to preach, um, though my wife does more than I do. Um, and I would say that local government, um, city government, state government, state legislatures are an important place to work from the ground up 
rather than concentrating in this manic, episodic way on the presidency every four years. And of course, our presidential campaigns last two years. <laughs> there's, almost, there's almost only two years of a presidency anymore because there's such a spectacular and media-driven fascination with just that. So it, it does seem to me, I mean, when I've talked to, for example, our local selectmen, I'm dealing with a very intelligent person who knows a great deal about the interests of the neighborhood and the town I live in. And I think that kind of investment uh, performed by more Americans, that kind of civic involvement, um, you know, could gradually, by reverberations, um, by more than a ripple effect, uh, lead to good effects in, in national government too. Um, but I, it's the star system of the presidency and the people who magnetize the attention of the media. I think that's, that's one of the, the great weaknesses that has kept on um, enlarging itself, at least in my lifetime, and that I, I think we're going to have to shrink it, as we're going to have to shrink the, you know, dream of governing the world by this country, if we're going to make sense of the crisis I talked about in the little passage I read, that is to say, the international crisis of how to, how to, how to have a habitable planet to live on. Thank you, David Bromwich, and thanks to everyone who joined us tonight. You may also visit nationalhumanitycenter.org to learn more about the center's work and other opportunities to explore the humanities. Good evening, everyone. Stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.